the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. What does crypto have to do with free speech? Everything, it seems. The U.S. government recently imposed sanctions on Tornado Cash, which is a crypto mixing service often used to hide the source of funds. It's rather like scrambling an egg. Tornado Cash makes it extremely difficult for law enforcement to trace the origin of funds. This, of course, was one of the great promises of crypto, the ability to keep your transactions private. Tornado was the leading mixing service on the Ethereum network until its closure earlier this month. As well as adding it to the sanctions list, the U.S. banned contributors and access points to the software. An estimated $437 million worth of assets consisting of stable coins, Ethereum, and wrapped Bitcoin are currently held in Tornado Cash's smart contract addresses. What's unique about this move by the U.S. government is what is being sanctioned is a piece of computer code, not an individual or an entity. Where does this leave crypto's great promise of privacy? Has it been strangled in the crib? Well, joining us to explore this is Daniel Pickering, who is Chief Investment Officer of Listed Reserve. That's an Australian-based digital asset management company. Daniel recently wrote a fascinating article on the subject in LiveWire, which is an online investment publication. Welcome, Daniel. It's good to have you first time on the MoneyWeb Crypto podcast, but can you Briefly explain and summarize what has happened with the U.S. government sanctioning Tornado Cash. Why is this so important? Thanks for having me, first of all, Kieran. Um, yeah, it was a big move, actually, the Tornado Cash um, move. And, and we um, we were quite surprised where it went. But, I mean, just to explain what um, a mixing service does, if, for example, you were to buy Ethereum on an exchange like Binance and you were concerned um, about your privacy. A lot of people are now aware that cryptocurrency transactions are quite easy to trace. So if you buy um, on an exchange and you send it to your wallet, you're, you're essentially one step away from the KYC process you went through um, at the exchange that you used. So it's fairly trivial to track down um, who owns which assets once they've been purchased at a KYC location. Now, for some people, the privacy aspect of cryptocurrency is very important. Uh, and so what they do, they send their assets um, to services like Tornado, which essentially commingles the assets with other people that have um, similar preferences around privacy. Um, and ultimately, it sends the assets back to you. Um, so you might send, say, 1F and you might get 0.99 back after they've charged their small fee. Um, but the provenance of the assets is no longer traceable. So you might do that because you're particularly concerned um, about privacy, and a lot of people are. Um, and you might also do that because perhaps you have something to hide and um, you know, you've come about your assets um, either through a hack or, or just outright stealing them. Now, in the case of this ban, um, the US government said that Tornado was being used by um, North Korean hackers, and we sort of know the North Koreans are quite involved in um, stealing cryptocurrency. So we've got no reason to um, disbelieve the US government really on that score. And so as far as that went, it wasn't so much of a surprise. I think it's what happened afterwards that really was a surprise. Um, and the first thing was the way it cascaded through DeFi. So the, the Americans essentially sanctioned addresses that Tornado had used. 
And you've called out the amount that was in there, you know, 400 plus million dollars. And half, you know, a, a great number of um, supposedly decentralized platforms immediately said, well, we're going to comply um, with uh, the OFAC regulations. Now, that's also fine, but it does mean um, that you're not decentralized. Like decentralized essentially means there's nobody that could make that decision, right? So if you, if you are a DeFi platform, you really ought to be just a piece of software um, that's agnostic as far as politics or government's concerned. So it's quite interesting the extent to which, you know, protocols that we didn't think would respond like AVE and DYDX, we expected Coinbase and Binance to do it, but um, so many of them moved to comply, which was very interesting and sort of pointed to perhaps Ethereum is not as decentralized as we thought. The next thing that happened was one of the developers of Tornado Cash was arrested in Amsterdam. Now, we don't actually know the charges that have been laid against that guy, but if he's been arrested for writing code that has then been used nefariously, um, that's quite an interesting move because code is protected really by the First Amendment in the US. It's sort of deemed to be covered by freedom of speech. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see what are the charges that have been laid against this guy? Because if all he's done is write the code and then somebody else has used it um, for a nefarious purpose, that's a different thing. So it, it was it was quite a quite an interesting play from, from the US and the speed with which it cascaded through nearly everything in DeFi um, it took us by surprise, I have to say. Uh, there is some court precedent in this. Uh, I believe there was a case back in the 1990s where computer code was actually protected as free speech. I think it's under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This surely does open up a door for a possible challenge in the courts. I mean, if you're attacking computer code as an infringement of free speech, that really does open up a whole hornet's nest of you know possible trouble down the line, no? I think it does. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to look at the charges that have been laid. Um, and they've been, they've been laid against someone in Amsterdam. So I'm not familiar with, you know, what the what the Dutch courts might say. But, you know, knowing what we do about Holland, I'm sure they've got something similar. Um, so it, it's quite interesting. I, I think that they will attempt to suggest that uh, the developers knowingly been involved um, with sort of nefarious activity rather than go directly to you wrote the code and therefore, um, you know, you're guilty. Um, but aside from that, I mean, they deleted um, these people's GitHub accounts. Um, it, it was quite a sweeping set of measures they took against a whole host of people that had contributed to the code that have not been arrested. Um, and I think you're right. If any of those people are American and say, well, hold on a minute, um, I can write any code I want. Um, I think they're going to have a reasonable case. And I, I guess it would also put the fear of God into people who are writing mixing code or you know, there are other mixing products out there. And, you know, in South Africa, there was a, a, a crypto scam called Mirror Trading International where it, it appears a lot of the money, a lot of the Bitcoin that went through Mirror Trading was that they use these mixing pieces of software to try and hide the origins of that. So th there would be a lot of other people who would be looking at this case with a lot of alarm, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, you know, there's plenty of people that, that think, why do you need a mixing service, right, if you haven't done something wrong? But there's an equal number of people that say, well, 
you know, I'm entitled to my privacy. I actually have a right to privacy, right? There's no reason why I can't own an asset and its provenance not be known. And you've got those sort of two competing groups. Um, but clearly, governments do not like mixing services because um, they tend to be a hornet's nest for people that um, have acquired their assets, let's say, in an unusual way, right? They're definitely going to use mixing services. And then you've got a group of people that actually you might you might call them you know, the libertarian group that think, well, you know, my privacy is important and I'm going to use this service to ensure I keep my privacy. Uh, and they're all um, commingled in this software and they've all been kind of caught in the net, unfortunately. Okay. Tell us a little bit about Listed Reserve. Uh, from what I can tell, you're a digital asset investment firm with a long-only fund that's been going since 2018. Tell us what does the fund hold and are you attempting to outperform a particular benchmark? Yeah, so we're in year five now. So um, we, we've been through, um, well, certainly 2018 when we started was a fairly savage bear market. Now we're in another. We have two funds, a Bitcoin fund, um, which purely holds Bitcoin for clients, and a managed fund, which holds a sort of variety of assets. It's gone pretty well uh, since we started. We're, we're, we're up sort of, well, the managed funds up over five times since we uh, since we launched. That's including the sort of 50% drawdown we've experienced in, in sort of recent months. So it's been it's been really, um, really successful. We're really pleased with it. From a benchmark perspective, I think our, our goal for the managed fund is to outperform Bitcoin, um, which is which is not a um, trivial matter, uh, as you can imagine, but we've, we've managed to do that over five years. Um, but we're extremely conservative about how we do it. So we, do, you know, we don't trade, we don't use leverage. Um, we're just very, very careful about asset selection. So not many assets in the uh, in the whole ecosystem make it through our make it through our tests. So there's probably only five or six assets in the managed fund. We're particularly interested in things that um, live in what we call their own ecosystems. So where we find assets that, that live in a sort of closed loop. So if I give you an example, um, Binance, the exchange, has its own native token, um, the BNB, which sort of lives in that ecosystem, entitles clients to a very substantial discount on trading uh, if they're large holders of it. Um, you know, they, they burn a certain amount of those tokens according to their revenue that that, that um, assets perform particularly well. But we like that model because there's a there's an economic case for the existence of the of the token. Um, you know, most significant users of Binance use BNB to reduce their fees. And they've done a really terrific job of sort of integrating it into everything that Binance does. Um, so we like those um, sorts of environments where we can see that the asset can live somewhere um, in a sort of closed loop and, and be used, like, like an asset sort of that lives in an economy of its own. So another example, um, we're interested in video games. So where um, you've got a video game that's kind of its own economy, um, and I think more and more and more we're going to see games like this um, where we see assets that sort of run that economy and they have the right sort of um, token economics, we're, we're kind of interested in them. So um, that's that's roughly how we look at it. But our, as I say, we're extremely conservative in, in how we do things. So most assets don't pass our 
Well, the first test is the liquidity test, right? Can we liquidate our entire position sort of immediately and not affect the market price? Most assets don't pass that test anyway. So um, that, that's the first hurdle for them. And what has been the the uptake like during this crash that we've seen recently? I mean, if you look at the funds that we got going in South Africa, that may, may be similar to yours. The, it, it, people tend to jump into cryptos when the prices are bullish when they're rising and so over the last few months there's been a definite drop however you know if you look at the the stats coming out of glassnode and and people like that who are researching this there does seem to be quite a lot of nibbling people are buying at these low prices and we're talking there about the seasoned crypto investors people who've been in this for a long while they see this as probably an opportunity to get in at a lower price are you finding the same kind of experience yeah very much actually it's been um so the first six months, actually, no, January was okay, but February onward, um, people became very conservative. I think the the sort of the way people allocate their assets, um, you know, you're looking at they've got their sort of core equities, maybe they've got some bonds, and then right out on the risk spectrum is where we live. Um, and you know, in the first half of this year, people just weren't looking to allocate to the very risky end of the spectrum. So as far as new clients and new money was concerned, the first half was quite hard. And as far as existing clients that have been with us for um, quite a while, and they found it quite a compelling period, right? They've been through a few ups and downs. Um, so the sort of what we call the reloads were, were very good uh, in, the, in the first half, but new clients definitely dropped off. I think we've seen that change. Something happened in mid-July that I can't quite put my finger on. Um, and sentiments changed quite sort of significantly, um, quite significantly since then. So we've we've you know we've seen you know quite a change in flow um, since the, the turn of the half year really. And your clients are they mainly based in Australia? Are they institutional retail? How would you describe them? So we're a wholesale fund, so um, it's mostly family offices, high net wealth. Um, we do we do quite a few super funds as well. Um, but yeah, from all over the world, we've got clients um, in South Africa and um, we've got clients, you know, 80% of them will be Australia, Asia and some from the USA as well. So, yeah, we, we, we take money from all over the world. Okay, I mean, let's talk about the Ethereum merge. I think uh, what's one of the big events on the crypto horizon is what is called the Ethereum merge. And for those less familiar with this space, maybe explain what that means. And is this going to be good for Ethereum in the long term? Yeah, so the merge is, it's called the merge because two blockchains are merging, right? So you've got the existing Ethereum blockchain, which is a proof of work blockchain. So what that means is, um, the blocks in that chain are determined by miners who use computing power um, to sort of solve blocks for which they earn a reward. The merge, which is um, the beacon chain, is a proof of stake chain. So on that chain, transactions are verified basically by um, the people with the most staked assets. So you're going from a world where um, people with the sort of computing power and the mining machines that many of your listeners will be familiar with to a, to a world where um, it will be the person that stakes the largest amount of F that um, is most likely to resolve a block, right? So it will depend on essentially how much money you've got. 
Now, um, roughly about the September the 15th, those two chains will merge and Ethereum will become a proof of stake um, asset rather than a proof of work asset. Now, there's a lot of excitement in the Ethereum community about this because it's, it's, it's a sort of technical journey. This is the first part on a technical journey. And the benefits of the technical journey are that when they get to the end of it, they'll be processing, so they claim, 100,000 transactions a second up from 10 currently, right? So a 10,000-fold increase in, in TPS is pretty significant. The other thing the merge does uh, is greatly reduce the Ethereum inflation rate. So it's something like a 90% reduction in issuance uh, that will occur post-merge. So it's kind of the equivalent of sort of three Bitcoin halvings at once, right? So those two things are making people pretty excited about uh, where the merge um, is going. I think that's been reflected in the price. You know, in the last six weeks, Ethereum's up to like 65 70%, right? So there's a few people moving into F ahead of this merge. But there is a big but coming here. Um, I think there are some major concerns about proof of stake uh, and whether proof of stake's going to work. And this recent activity we saw on Tornado has really brought this to the fore, right? So if you look at the, the new chain, the beacon chain of Ethereum, uh, there's 60% of the assets that are staked in there are basically controlled by three entities, one of which is Coinbase, right? Now, what that means is when we get past the merge, those three entities essentially control Ethereum. And what that means is if the US government wants to censor a transaction, they only need to make three phone calls. They know who the CEO of Coinbase is. They know who the CEO of Bitcoin Swiss is. It's not going to be a difficult matter for them to censor anything they like. Now, from my perspective, that's profoundly bad for Ethereum, right? Because you're moving away from the sort of promise of depoliticized money and because the extent to which they can apply political influence to how these chains work post-merge is much, much greater in my view. Now, it may be um, that... That is a good thing for price, right, in the short term, because people will focus on the transaction processing. They'll focus on the fact that it's moved to proof of stake, which they will view as um, more ESG friendly. They'll focus on the fact that it's more compliant, therefore, um, with what the government wants. And so I can see Ethereum running pretty hard as a result of a successful merge. But in 10 years time, I think they're going to slip into the arms of regulatory capture. You know, it, it's kind of morphing into a um, a bank run on a blockchain, right? It, it's it's moving away from its original promise, and I think that is being lost in the sort of excitement of um, the technical promise of the merge. So let's see what happens. I'm not suggesting that you know price wise it's immediately bad. I'm suggesting that as a long term proposition um it, it's it's moving away from what people thought ethereum would be and um, so we'll see um you know i'm really interested to watch you know you know you've got the two biggest assets in the ecosystem bitcoin and ethereum going head to head on, on consensus mechanism right you've got bitcoin is obviously going to stay proof of work you've got ethereum going proof of stake 
And, you know, over the course of the next decade, we're going to get an answer to which one's uh, the winner. I think I know what, what it will be, but, you know, let's um, sit back and enjoy the ride. Right. I, I presume you've got Ethereum in your fund as well. Yeah, we do. Um, we do. And, and for a whole variety of reasons. But um, Ethereum, you know, I, I worry about um, its technical platform. I worry about the move to proof of stake, but it's tremendously well funded. Uh, if you look at all the new projects um, that launch, a lot of them are on Ethereum. If you look at the level of developer talent um, that's committed to Ethereum, it's enormous, right? They've got some tremendously talented people that work on that platform. So I don't want to bet against them. I just want to, you know, our position in Ethereum is relatively small, right? It would be somewhere around 6 or 7% of the fund. So it can't really um, do us any damage, whatever happens. But um, I'm certainly less convicted on it than I am on, on some of the other things that we we engage with. But, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not betting against it for a minute. Right. So the, the this battle between Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, you 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 don't you haven't really sort of indicated where you're leaning, but I, I do get a sense perhaps you think Bitcoin is going to emerge as the the triumphant crypto. Uh, well, is that a yeah, feeling? Because I think you know if if the promises uh, a decentralized, depoliticized method by which um, we can exchange value peer to peer. Well, there's only one winner. And, you know, the tornado um, situation that we, you know, we've watched unfold over the last 10 weeks basically proves it as far as I'm concerned. Um, and this move to proof of stake, um, I think, will bring it into even greater focus. Now, that does not mean that Ethereum is going to be a bad investment, right? It's a, it's a question of which one's actually going to deliver on the original promise. Now, ultimately, I think it's going to be Bitcoin. But, you know, can Ethereum get all sorts of blessings from governments around the world because it's deemed to be doing the right thing? It probably can. And, and you know, can it capture value as a result? Again, it probably can. So um, I, I certainly wouldn't encourage people to give up hope on it. I just think it isn't the, the asset that's going to deliver um, the original promise. Where does that leave the competitors to Ethereum? I mean, things like Chainlink and Solana, for example, uh, they were designed to address some of the shortcomings that were seen in Ethereum, which Ethereum is now trying to correct through this merge and this technical upgrade that you spoke about. Well, what about these competitors? Do they have a, a foothold? Do you think they've got a future? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at Solana, right, in to me, we've had multiple versions of this over the years, right? If you remember, it was probably five or six years ago now. The first one really was EOS, if you remember EOS, um, which raised sort of five or six billion dollars. And they were going to be the new Ethereum. And it was going to be faster and quicker and more transactions, right? Didn't happen. Next, we had Tron, right, which was going to be faster and quicker and it kind of didn't well it did happen to some extent right they did take some volume away from ethereum solana took some volume away from ethereum but essentially if you're going to go into the we will be the fastest and the cheapest race it's a race to the bottom for your security model right because you you need a fee market you you need people to pay fees to use the platform so that you've got a proper security market around the blockchain and i think 
the 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 Ethereum move to proof of stake is no it's not good news for Solana, it's not good news for Tron, and because they're now competing on a level playing field of low fees and very fast transactions, and they're compromising their security model uh, in doing it. And um, so it, it may be it may be good for Ethereum. I don't think it's any good at all for Solana. The other thing that Solana, for example, has proved is just how technically difficult all this stuff is, right? You know, if you're constantly changing your code, you're going to get big issues. I mean, Solana, it's just been a, I wouldn't quite say a disaster, but, you know, it's down a lot. They've had a lot of problems. And, you know, when you're making big technical changes, you can have issues. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Ethereum has some big issues over the next few months, because you've got essentially a $200 billion asset in Ethereum. But then you've got $100 billion of assets sat on top of it, right? All the stable coins. This change they're making with the merge, does everything work that sits on Ethereum? Do all those assets that have been issued on Ethereum work with the new chain? We don't know. And, you know, it's not as though um, in this ecosystem, everybody's talking to everybody else and saying, look, test this, test that, test the other. We're only going to find out after the September the 15th. So it's pretty risky, I think, to be sat in assets that are um, reliant on the Ethereum chain. I think, you, I think you're okay if you hold Ethereum because, you know, they can roll that back if there's an error. Or, In fact, I'm not sure they can roll back actually when they do the merge, but they'll certainly fix the main chain and you'll collect any forks. But if you've got assets that sit on Ethereum, well, that's not really up to Ethereum to fix. So some of those issued assets on the chain look quite vulnerable to me. But I think, you know, as for the Ethereum competitors, um, it's bad news for them, right? Because their promise of um, fast and cheap is, is something that Ethereum's now chasing themselves. Just talk about uh, wrapped Ethereum for a minute, because that's going to be affected post the merger as well, I would imagine. And, and, and what is wrapped Ethereum? Can you explain that? You mean the, the WF? Yeah, W, yeah. That's the proof of work version of Ethereum, right? So it's 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 not wrapped Ethereum. It's actually um, the W is for proof of work. So a guy called Chandler Gao, who's the biggest miner in Ethereum, who does not support the move to proof of stake, is going to continue to mine um, the existing Ethereum blockchain. So Ethereum as is will continue to exist after September the 5th. And he's Ethereum are going to keep F and he's launching WF. And a few of the exchanges have said they'll support it, Poloniex and uh, BitMEX, certainly two that I know of. Uh, and so um, any holder of F will, will also be a holder of this forked chain, WF. Uh, and he's quite um, a well-resourced guy. So they've released the white paper. I must say, I didn't think much of the white paper. So um, I, I'm not sure how successful this asset will be. But if you know, he gains enough traction. If Ethereum has issues with its sort of assets that have been issued on the new chain, I think people will start to look closely at, at, at the proof of work alternative. So um, it'll be really interesting to watch and play out. It either gets traction quickly or it dies quickly, right? Um, so uh, I don't think it's something that, that, that's going to limp, limp along for, for years and years and years. Um, so there'll be a lot to sort of keep an eye on in sort of September and October. Okay, so this is WETH. That's uh, that's a new coin that's going to be launched. What run at the same time as the merge happens? Yeah, well, yeah. Definitionally, it will be at the same time as the merge happens. So, what will happen with the merge? Um, 
the beacon chain will come into the existing chain at a certain block number, and that will become the new F that's proof of stake. And he will fork at that point. He'll fork the code, and that will become WF, which will um, be exactly as F was before. Now, he's got to make a few system changes, right? He's got to um, diffuse this thing called the difficulty bomb, which Ethereum essentially built into their code to stop people doing what he's doing. Um, but he's going to change the code um, to get rid of the difficulty bomb, and he can continue to mine um, Ethereum on that chain. Now, there's two points of view. One point of view is, well, it, it's quite nice that he's doing it because as a hedge, if something goes wrong and, you know, the existing Ethereum chain will still be alive. The other point of view is he owns hundreds of millions of dollars of mining equipment. And, and this is just his way of sort of um, enriching himself with a tail coin that will eventually go down to zero. Now, it's a matter of opinion which camp you sort of sit in. Just uh, talk for a minute about your background, because you studied at the London School of Economics, and I presume you had a fairly conventional uh, background or education in investment, and you've moved over to the crypto space. And it occurs to me while you're talking there, you, you have to have a real handle on the technical aspects of, of, of crypto. You've got to be able to wade your way through all of these white papers that are coming out. You've got to understand the mining operation. It's very different to analyzing a, a company like BHP Billiton or Anglo-American. So just talk about some of those technical complexities. It is it is different, but I think, you know, the, the core elements of it are um, not that different, right? So let, let, let me, let's just say, what does our investment committee do, right? When, when we look at an asset, the first thing we do is look at its liquidity, right? So can we sell it? You know, what's the volume? Um, all that kind of thing that I think, you know, as a sort of uh, a general analyst in equity, you might also do, right? It's quite interesting to know, you know, what is the volume in a particular stock and all the rest. So that's similar. I think, um, you know, we are also very, very interested in use case, right? So we use the asset before we ever invest someone else's money in it. Does it do what it says on the tin? Again, I think if you're an equity analyst, you're looking at, um, so you mentioned BHP Billison, right? Does anybody want iron ore? Um, what's the demand for iron ore going to do in the next five to 10 years? Um, so all that sort of stuff is applicable. Where it's different is when you get into the sort of token economics, right? So um, there is no, in most cases, for crypto, there's no, there is no price earnings ratio. There is no, you've got to make a whole set of different assumptions around um, the token economics, the ecosystem that the asset lives in, how big will it get? You know, what sort of market could it capture? What sorts of things is it replacing, right? So, you know, if you were looking at a, a DeFi asset, is it actually going to replace some accountant in some distant country um, because the software is more efficient? Um, is it going to replace a stock exchange and all those sorts of things? So that it's that final component around you know, the, the token economics, the ecosystem, does it work? That's the bit that's, that's very, very, uh, very different. And, you know, we, we've been on a, well, we still learn stuff every day when we look at it. You know, it, it, it's, I don't think there's anybody that does it, uh, does it perfectly. Um, but we certainly spend a great deal of time on that, on that third component. I mean, one of the things that is happening in the, in the with blockchain technology is the emergence of 
competitors to what you would call you know your traditional for example forex markets you can now uh, you can trade forex using stable coins you can buy options which are based on the blockchain there are stock exchanges which are being planned um you know you're going to be able to list your company typically you would probably spend months or even a year or longer trying to get a listing on a stock exchange you can do that much faster on uh some of these exchanges which are being planned. Maybe just talk about how you see the future of finance built around this new ecosphere of the of the blockchain and crypto. Yeah, uh, well, I think finance is, is, is perfectly suited to, to software, right? Um, because most things in finance and FX markets and that kind of thing, it's just about, you know, do you have the money? Can you settle the money? When will you settle the money? All of that kind of stuff, which software is absolutely excellent at. Now, a good example is, say, in June, right, when we had the sort of Celsius collapse, we had um, Voyager falling over. It was all just a giant nightmare. But in um, the truly sort of decentralized um, protocols, they worked pretty well, right? They liquidated people at the right time. They recovered assets at the right time and returned them to the right people. I was actually really impressed with how some of those um, software protocols worked. Um, and you wouldn't have had that in traditional finance, right? If what had happened in June had happened in um, traditional finance, like it did, I must say, in 2008, the market's just suspended, right? You know, if the stock market drops 10%, it's suspended. If it drops 20%, it's closed for the day, right? Now, to me, um, that's not terribly good. I think this is a much purer market. And while June was ugly, um, I, I think most of the software uh, performed really well. Now, uh, you know, and it settled transactions exactly as it said it would. Nobody intervened. Fair enough, the Bitcoin price went from, $40,000 to $20,000. But so what, right? That's what markets do. That's the clearing price. Loads of people went bankrupt like Celsius. I think that's good. I, I think that's capitalism. And, you know, I think letting it run in that way is terrific. And you know, to me, um, there's so much opportunity for this kind of software uh, to remove and some of the sluggishness that you that you get in in traditional banking. And when I say sluggishness, like it's it's kind of remarkable that banks open in this country from ten o'clock till four o'clock, right? It's extraordinary, right? The stock market is open from ten o'clock till half past three in Australia. Bitcoin already has a longer trading record than the Nasdaq because it's open twenty four seven. Right. So we're moving into a world where there's kind of permanent liquidity and permanent settlement opportunity. And I think that that's the sort of going to be the uh, going to be the difference. The traditional finance world still operates like it's 1955. Uh, and a lot of these protocols are going to come and uh, eat their lunch. It's not going to happen tomorrow and it's not going to happen next year, but it is going to happen in the next decade. Where is that going to leave banks, do you think? Are they a little bit behind the curve on this? I think they are. I think I think actually banks should be more worried about central bank digital currencies, right? I think if I was in a if I was a, a retail bank, I'd be lobbying extremely hard against um, central bank digital currencies because, um, in in essence, 
those sorts of things are everybody, you know, you and I, it's essentially us having an account with the central bank um, rather than with a retail bank. So, I, you know, even the things that the government is suggesting don't look terribly positive for, um, for retail banking. And I think a lot of people around the world are still pretty sore about what happened back in 2008, 2009, right? I don't think banking's um, recovered its reputa reputation since then. I don't think it ever will. Um, so, you know, I think gradually this software, and it will be in small pieces, this software will start to replace uh, the functions of banks. It, it, it's not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen overnight, um, but it is going to happen. Right. Just going back to this Ethereum merge, which is happening in September, how is that going to affect Bitcoin mining? Um, you know, we're, we're really looking at this, uh, we can call it a fork, if you like, between the proof of work and the proof of stake. But for Bitcoin miners, is this a good or a bad thing? Um, I, I think it will. It's, it's fundamentally a good thing. I mean, first and foremost, you know, all of the energy that's used to uh, mine Ethereum is going to be freed up for Bitcoin miners, right? So there's going to be a whole load of rack space and energy available for them, um, which I'm sure they'll readily consume. So I think there's going to be an immediate benefit to them there. And um, the hardware that's used to uh, mine Ethereum uh, it cannot, cannot be used to mine Bitcoin. So um, it's not like your Ethereum miners can suddenly decide, oh, well, I'm just going to switch chains. They can't, right? So it's not as though new competitors are going to be born for Bitcoin miners. They aren't. It's going to sort of free up a little bit of the energy market for the Bitcoin miners. So I think it's probably, um, it's probably a good thing for them. But I think longer term, it's an excellent thing for them, right? Because we are going to have this um, play out of proof of work versus proof of stake. And at the end of it, we're going to find out what is the appropriate um, mechanism for distributed consensus. And my view is it will be proof of work and hence it'll be, you know, excellent for uh, Bitcoin miners ultimately. Right. Uh, so proof of work, of course, that, that is the, the, the method in, in which Bitcoin is mined. It is energy intensive. And this is Bitcoin gets a lot of attack for that because uh, we have read stories about the, the, the amount of electricity that Bitcoin miners are using. It's equivalent to the entirety of Denmark's electricity consumption, according to one story that I read. But of course, what we are seeing is that Bitcoin miners are starting to move towards more renewable sources of energy like hydropower and solar and so on. So proof of work, uh, getting a bad rap, but you, you, you see that as kind of solving itself. And I think Michael Saylor from Michael's MicroStrategy has also talked about that, where energy sources which are not part of the grid are now being tapped by, energy, by Bitcoin miners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you follow Bitcoin mining closely, you'll, um, you'll know that Bitcoin miners are uh, essentially the energy users of last resort, right? If you, uh, in Australia, we have this situation because of the sunshine um, in Queensland, particularly, everyone's got solar panels. During the day, there's a huge surplus of electricity uh, in Queensland, right? And um, now somebody's got to come along at some point and balance that grid. Uh, and, you know, it, I think it will be the Bitcoin miners. Um, they'll take the energy during the day when there's a massive surplus and there's nothing they can do with it. Like, it, it, it's a real issue. It stresses out the grid up there. Uh, and then in the evening when, you know, everybody's turning their kettles on and whatever else, they can turn it down. I mean, to this sort of ESG theme, there is no more um, 
sort of ESG friendly industry in the world than Bitcoin. Like it's 60% renewable. And generally, it's, it can only use energy that um, other people can't use, right? If you want to mine Bitcoin profitably over the long term, you cannot spend more than three cents a kilowatt hour on that energy, right? They're not competing with you turning on your oven. They're not, right? They've got to go and find sources of energy um, that are either stranded. They've, they've got to go and find surplus energy because, you know, uh, the sun's shining and there's too much energy in Queensland or the wind's blowing somewhere where it ought not to be. You know, you're going to find... Bitcoin miners bootstrapping all kinds of renewable energy projects all over the world. So I think the narrative around uh, it's not ESG friendly is is entirely false. I also I think it's starting to change a bit now as well as as, as a sort of th those people that are, um, you know, extracting methane from the atmosphere and mining Bitcoin and making a good case about why they're doing something positive for the environment. But more fundamentally than that, the energy use is critical to the value proposition, right? Bitcoin is massively expensive to produce, and it's essential that it remains massively expensive to produce, right? That's the that's the value. It basically is represented by the energy. So when you send me a Bitcoin, I know that someone has expended a great deal of energy um, to produce it. That's the whole point. And removing it um, would be um, you know, would be fairly fundamental to the value proposition in the same way that I think it is for um, for F ultimately. Can we talk about NFTs for a minute? Uh, for a moment, non fungible tokens. Um, we were talking beforehand. You're not that convinced that there is a case for NFTs. So, what is your take on this? Is this? I mean, I, I also am a little bit concerned that you know people are buying pictures of unicorns for a very, very high price. And, and I don't really see the business case. What's your take on it? Yeah, I think everything we've seen so far with NFTs is experimental, right? So when when sort of Bitcoin came along and it, it solved that problem of you could exchange um, a digital asset for digital value, um, I think people have kind of extended that idea now to, to other assets like um, music like art, but you know you can sort of you can copy them anyway, right? You know we can all copy a piece of music, we can all copy a piece of art. I think where NFTs might be a little bit more applicable is again in a closed um, ecosystem. So you know as I mentioned, when we look at assets, we like things that live in a closed ecosystem. So let me give you an example. If you had a video game and um, you know, you could buy a better gun than other players. You might spend money on it. But if your ownership of that was secured by um, a cryptographic signature, which meant that you could sell it to another player, would that have value? Yeah, I think it would. Would it be an NFT? Yeah, I think it would. So I can see scenarios where it, um, where it works, but I think they need um, ecosystems to live in. So at the moment, the NFTs that we've got are sort of, they live in kind of the real world. They don't have an ecosystem to validate them. Whereas if they live in a piece of software, it's a different story. I mean, I can imagine scenarios, and we were talking about this the other week, but you know Google Earth, right? Yeah. So let's just say Google um, overlays a matrix on Google Earth and you zoom in on your house and there's 10 little squares for sale 
for $50. And you can buy that piece of land on Google Earth, right? 50 bucks. Would you buy it? Um, I don't know. Uh, possibly. I think I probably would. Just to stop somebody else getting it, first of all. And then if Google said to me, right, well, now you can build a cool house on there and you can kit it out with all this cool stuff and you can hold your meetings inside there, right? So I'm just hypothesizing about some virtual world that could exist that people would see value in. I think a lot of people would see value in that, right? So it, that kind of draws a link between um, the reality that we actually live in physically and the digital world that people are familiar with Google Earth, if they start selling land on Google Earth, I bet you it would go absolutely nuts. That's an NFT, right? So um, I can see scenarios where people um, make a lot of money from it. And, you know, there are companies out there like Facebook, like Google, with the resources to build out those ecosystems so that they're actually appealing for people, right? So it's actually appealing um, to sort of go in there and hold meetings and meet colleagues, right? At the moment, I don't see anything um, that is appealing, right? Even even on those demos that Zuckerberg gives. I mean, the graphics are awful. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't spend two minutes in there. That doesn't mean that it isn't going to happen in the future, though. So I, I'm keeping an open mind about uh, NFTs. We don't own any for the fund. Uh, we're watching it. Uh, we're watching it closely. But at the moment, it's too detached from either physical reality or indeed from digital reality, because the digital reality of a lot of these ecosystems is 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 quite a painful experience. It just occurred to me, I was driving down to the Free State uh, about three hours from Joburg uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the, the roads have just deteriorated to the point where you, you, you can't go faster than about 40 or 50 Ks per hour because the potholes. And, you know, I thought that I would love to have somebody who had a, a GoPro on their car that was driving down that road in real time so that I could see before I went down that road what I'm in for. And I would be prepared to pay for that. Now, Tesla is doing something similar where they have all of these sensors and these cameras on their cars and they're gathering all this data as their cars are driving down the road. They're picking up the foot traffic in the city center. Uh, so you can see where people are gathering, if there's an accident or an incident, should you avoid that part of town or if you just want to ogle and just have a look at what's going on in the town, you, you'll be able to do that very, very soon. Um, but the question is, who owns that? Surely the individual, you know, he has the right to to monetize that somehow. If you're driving down a road, you got your GoPro on, you should be able to sell it to somebody if somebody finds value in that. What do you think? I, I see what you're saying as far as Tesla is concerned. And, you know, in essence, I suppose that's the promise of um, Web3 uh, is that, you know, if you are driving down the road and you are making a recording, that data should belong to you, right? And so, um, you know, is there a world in which uh, we're collating our own data and monetizing it for ourselves? Yeah, I think there probably is. And I think that probably is the promise that people are making. And um, because, you know, we're currently in a world where all of our data is monetized by somebody else, which um, which is wrong. Um, so, you know, not necessarily convinced that they'll uh, they'll be NFTs, but um, it, you know, is there a world in which uh, those things that we own and we generate, whether they be sort of journeys from home to work or journeys down any road in particular or anything actually that arises from things that we do, 
Um, you know, can they be monetized to our advantage through this technology? I imagine over the next decade, that sort of thing's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you wrote a story about Web3, which I, I, I highly recommend people go and look on the listed reserve website. Um, fascinating description of Web. So we've had Web1, Web2, and Web3. Maybe just talk about Web3. This is where you own data like that, where we've just been talking about. You've got a GoPro and you're filming yourself going down the road. You can sell that. That's one example. Maybe give us a few others. But why is it that when you... Um you know, surf the internet and you click at a particular place on the page or you then go from Gmail to um, the BBC website or whatever it might be, why is it that that um, experience that you've generated does not belong to you, right? And I, I think that's, you know, where we're going is that there are platforms that are being built that will allow you to claim the benefit of the data trail that you're leaving. And of course, we're all leaving massive data trails across the internet, which are being monetized by Facebook, uh, Google, and others. Um, and to some extent, the promise of Web3 is that bounty will be shared with the user, and it probably should be. Um, and you know, we see the sort of seeds of that kind of ecosystem in the Cryptocurrency exchanges which have native tokens, you know, you trade with the native token, you benefit the native token, right? Um, now, you might make an argument that, well, I use Facebook and I own Facebook stock, so I benefit. But I think that it's too indirect. Um, and I think what you're going to see is that people will start to benefit more directly from the web experience they're creating for themselves. Um, it, it's actually... I suppose it's complicated to build, but in many ways, it's already built, isn't it? It's just that all the gains are going to uh, three or four companies and, and, you know, getting them spread out across the populace is essentially the uh, the promise of Web3. Daniel Pickering, we're going to leave it there. Fascinating discussion on what the future holds for crypto and particularly for uh, what I found interesting was the discussion on the Ethereum merge and the future of Web3, because I think that is something a lot of us are you know, struggling to understand how is that going to benefit it. But it is really bringing sovereignty back to the individual and ownership back to the individual of their own experience on the internet. And um, thanks very much for joining us, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.